December 2011, a Tunisian vegetable vendor set himself alight in protest at the economic policies of his country. The death of Mohamed Bouazizi would like the touch paper in Tunis and the surrounding Arab world, which would see dictators toppled, wars break out, and millions of people displaced in what would become known as the Arab Spring. Many seasons have come and gone since then, and Tunisia has gone on to hold its first free elections since the country's independence in 1956. However, the wider region remains in a state of severe unrest. Professor Richard Falk of Princeton University in the United States is an expert in the Middle East and has reported on the Israel-Palestine conflict for the United Nations. His new book, Chaos and Counter-Revolution, The Arab Spring, argues that the initial optimism of 2011 has been replaced by oppressive governments or brutal civil wars. He spoke to me from his home in Istanbul via Skype about the major topics in the book. With the Arab Spring representing a multitude of movements in several countries, we focused on several case studies. The uprising in Egypt, the civil war in Syria, and the reaction of the USA to the crisis and the rise of ISIS. The domino fall of authoritarian regimes in the region was greeted with optimism in both the West and the Middle East. However, Professor Falk believes this was misplaced, no more so than in Egypt. What seemed so exciting in 2011 and was recognized as the Arab Spring, especially by the mainstream media, always seemed to me to be a, a premature celebration that these uh, uprisings in the Arab world, which were certainly unexpected and more uh, formidable, than could have been anticipated, still were not very clear in either their program or their understanding of the preconditions for a genuinely transformative politics. For instance, in Egypt, the most important country in relation to the Arab world, uh, the notion that you could transform the Egyptian political scene uh, merely by getting rid of the uh, hated leader and his immediate entourage, but leaving the bureaucracy and the armed forces more or less in control of the state was a very naive uh, notion. For real change to take root, Folk believes that the change must be wholesale and absolute. For inspiration, he thinks the current movements should look back to 1979 and the Iranian Revolution. What the Iranian Revolution did achieve was a rupture with the political past associated with the Shah's uh, government. But it was missing in the uh, context of these Arab uprisings in 2011. You can't really have a rupture with the past unless you also transform the bureaucracy that was operating in the past. And Egypt, particularly with its strong political centralization, had a very entrenched uh, bureaucracy, a very centralized uh, government structure. And uh, to depend as the uh, uprising in Tahrir Square did depend on the goodwill of the military was a very precarious way to achieve a transition to a more inclusive and democratic political order, which was the uh, goal of the uh, Arab uprising.
Having not thought past the initial challenge to the regimes they opposed, the movements that make up the Arab Spring have found themselves struggling to control the vacuum left behind. There were two uh, main scenarios, depending on the particular conditions in each of the principal Arab countries that existed. One was the restoration of uh, authoritarian rule of the sort that had existed in Egypt during the Mubarak period, and then uh, was uh, reestablished in even more uh, severe form uh, by the July 2013 coup led by General Sisi. And the, the alternative was a period of protracted conflict and chaos epitomized by uh, the situation that emerged early in 2011 in Syria, but then uh, has subsequently spread to Libya and to Yemen. The West initially championed the uprisings around the Arab world. With the movement in Egypt led by a new generation of activists, the West hoped that the Arab Spring would usher in a secular, liberal regime while maintaining the beneficial economic relations that were remnants of the imperial age. The hope was that you could have this more moderate governing process without disturbing the uh, advantageous economic links to the global economic order. I think that was the hope, and uh, uh, that hope was uh, uh, to a large degree uh, frustrated by the unexpected uh, political uh, popularity, at least in 2011 and 12, of the Muslim Brotherhood, that had, which was known to be a political force in the country, but Egyptians, as well as outsiders, thought that it would remain a minority force and that the new leadership would essentially uh, be secular and maintain a continuity with the Mubarak past. The economic dimension, which is uh, certainly part of the argument of my book, is not perhaps given as much attention as it deserves because Clearly, these authoritarian regimes are closely linked to the neoliberal uh, framework of economic globalization. And that makes the external actors, both the private sector actors and the governments, have a, uh, a bias toward maintaining the established order to the extent possible uh, in uh, response to what happened in Egypt there was an attempt to uh, adapt to what seemed like a, a revolutionary transformation uh, and keep as much of the established order in being as possible uh, but uh, then when the uh, Muslim Brotherhood rose to uh, the political, to a position of political leadership as a result of democratic elections, there was more and more nervousness on the part of external actors, uh, including Saudi Arabia, Israel, the US, 
And this uh, expressed itself by uh, essentially being uh, happy with the 2013 coup, which was really uh, antagonistic to the supposed commitment, particularly by Washington, uh, to a more democratic political order in the region. And so it demonstrated the primacy of geopolitics uh, with in relation to uh, uh, political democracy. While the early years of the 21st century have been dominated by American involvement in the Middle East, the USA have been reluctant to get embroiled in another conflict in the region. Professor Falk believes this response marks a change in American foreign policy. I think it was an attempt to demonstrate that the U.S. could live in a post-colonial world and uh, accept the dynamics of self-determination, especially if they seemed to be heading in a moderate direction. There was the uh, recognition that the interventions in Afghanistan and then in Iraq had proved to be political failures. Uh, and there was the uh, feeling that uh, the policy that had been adopted to, toward Turkey after it elected a uh, somewhat uh, Islamic-leaning uh, government back in 2002 was a, uh, a important way of preserving Western interests without relying on force. So it was a kind of uh, effort to think that soft power diplomacy was sufficient to protect Western interests in the region. Barack Obama has made multiple pronouncements on the Syrian subject particularly, but he hasn't been prepared to authorize another boots on the ground mission. I have uh, at this point not ordered military uh, engagement in the situation, but the point that you made about uh, chemical and biological weapons is critical. A red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. Falk also believed that the personal politics of the commander-in-chief are key in outlining his response. That Obama uh, was a domestically oriented president in the United States. He had opposed the Iraq war. His campaign uh, to be president rested on uh, removing American troops from Iraq. So he has a certain skepticism about using military force to promote American foreign policy goals in the region. If he had lost the election to uh, Romney, one might have had a more interventionary policy in the region. And no one knows how that would have worked out, but judging from it, the experience elsewhere in Libya itself, uh, it's doubtful that it would have proved successful. The lack of actions from the Americans, and in particular an unwillingness to maintain the status quo, has come into conflict with the wishes America's staunchest allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, and in particular Israel. From the Israeli point of view, uh, Democracy in the Arab world is always threatening because the public is much more committed to uh, Palestinian uh, 
liberation or national uh, self-determination than are the elites and the governments. And so this was, from the very beginning, uh, Israel was nervous. And uh, both Israel and Saudi Arabia were unhappy about the failure of the United States to give Mubarak as much support as they thought he should receive. Folk believes that the relationship with Israel has been a significant impediment on US foreign policy in the region. I regard Israel as a very big burden on the pursuit of American national interests and the interests of the wider world in a stable, peaceful uh, Middle East. A large part of the special relationship between the US and Israel is uh, conducted behind closed doors. But in my mind, there's no doubt that if there, if there wasn't this special relationship, uh, the US would press for a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East and solve the Iran problem in a much simpler and a satisfactory way and probably have a spillover to other issues, including the Israel-Palestine conflict. One of the ongoing theaters in the Arab Spring has been the civil war in Syria. The United Nations estimate that from the outbreak of the conflict in March 2011 to January of this year, 220,000 people have been killed. The ongoing refugee crisis has made headlines around the world, and many organizations estimate that one in two Syrians have been displaced either internally or into the surrounding countries. This has led to calls for Western powers such as the United States and the European Union to intervene and avert this humanitarian crisis. Professor Falk believes that while many motives may be pure, Western foreign policy is often tempered by other factors. The motivations of some of the proponents of the right to protect were and are humanitarian. But I think the implementation of the uh, norm uh, is uh, conditioned by the geopolitical setting. And for instance, the refusal to do anything to protect the people of Gaza while uh, intervening to protect the people of Libya is to me illustrative of a geopolitically driven doctrine uh, that uh, was can be justified by material considerations of strategy, resources, and if the humanitarian issues uh, provide a cover for that, that's all to the good. Uh, but if you have a clear case of humanitarian uh, vulnerability and catastrophe, as Gaza seems to me to have been for a very long time, and nothing is done, it suggests the hypocrisy of treating this as a morally motivated norm. Now, the closest that I think international practice came to a, a humanitarian intervention was probably Kosovo in 1999. But there again, there were very important non-material strategic interests, one of which was the demonstration that NATO was still an important political actor in a post-Cold War 
setting, and this was uh, the intervention in Kosovo was on the 50th anniversary of NATO, and also the sense that it was important to uphold the political viability of Europe as a place where human rights were uh, protected, or at least genocide was avoided. The most significant West intervention came in Libya. Britain and France led a NATO coalition, which established a no-fly zone in the region following the uprising against Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. This move was backed by the USA and contributed to the overthrow and death of Gaddafi in September of that year. This was seen by some as a model for Western involvement in the Arab Spring. However, Professor Falk disagrees. What was done uh, in Libya seemed to have a far less uh, risk associated with and more reward because of the oil and the uh, wealth of Libya as a country. Uh, in comparison to Syria, which had virtually no oil and was not a rich uh, country, was afflicted with a uh, climate change-induced drought. And unlike the isolated uh, regime of Gaddafi, the uh, Bashar Assad regime had a much deeper and broader a base of support and a more sophisticated uh, military capability, as well as having important friends like Iran and Russia. So on the one level, it's prudential. On the other level, it's what are the geopolitical stakes. And the geopolitical stakes in Libya seemed uh, quite high compared to the risks. The geopolitical stakes in uh, Syria are quite low compared to the political risks. And I think one can understand the difference in the approaches on the basis of these two sets of considerations. What has further complicated matters in the region has been the rise of the Islamic State militant group. The jihadist organization, which goes by many names, is believed to have been founded in 1999. It came to international prominence in 2014 when it declared a caliphate in the Middle East. Having once worked alongside Al-Qaeda, the two groups have split in recent years due to differences in tactics. However, Richard Falk believes the two groups still share some key similarities. ISIS is a strange formation of which uh, the whole story, I think, isn't uh, fully known. It seems to have uh, emerged partly as a result of the purge of the Ba'ath party and partly was seen as a, uh, in, in its early phases, as a way of resolving the Syrian crisis in a positive anti-Assad manner. As happened in Afghanistan with Al-Qaeda, this is another uh, Western formulated or Western constructed uh, Frankenstein that comes back to challenge its initial creator or supporter. So there's a big blowback uh, dimension to the relationship to ISIS, that this was something that either was partially allowed to take shape as a result of Western policies, 
and then viewed pragmatically as maybe consistent with those policies uh, until it turned its uh, fury against Western interests and uh, Western um, uh, values. The same thing happened in Afghanistan where these uh, extremist Islamic uh, groupings were seen as very useful as long as they were anti-Soviet, but it didn't occur to those that were giving them weapons and support that their opposition was to the West, whether it was in its communist form or in its American form. The failures in Iraq and Afghanistan tended to show that intervention, even with complete military uh, superiority, is hard to uh, translate into desirable political outcomes on the part of uh, sophisticated policy planners, there is a fairly wide recognition that prevention has not been successful. It's a lesson the U.S. should have learned in Vietnam, where it had complete military control of the conflict and yet uh, lost the war and was defeated politically uh, uh, despite an enormous investment of uh, uh, personnel and uh, resources. And, and the same pattern has been repeated uh, again and again. There's been an attempt to reinvent uh, so-called counterinsurgency doctrine to make uh, hard power intervention a more effective instrument to learn from the past. But so far, it's, there hasn't been a formula found that for an acceptable price uh, makes uh, military intervention geopolitically uh, attractive as an option. As the five-year anniversary of the start of the Arab Spring approaches, it is difficult to remember the initial optimism that greeted the uprisings as unrest, repression, civil war and terrorism have gripped the region. Can any country really be seen to have come out of the movement better off? Richard Falk believes that Tunisia, where it all began, offers some hope, though not without reservations. I think the Tunisian uh, uprising was the most sophisticated in terms of understanding what it took to be inclusive in this post-dictatorial uh, uh, period where after the elimination of uh, Saleh, the dictator. The uh, leadership, uh, including of the Islamic uh, movement, Ganushi, uh, was very uh, uh, subtle in his view that it would be a mistake to try to concentrate power in an Islamic party. And in that sense, both the, he was more reassuring to the West and at the same time more built a solider base for uh, political reform in Tunisia. But even there, the uh, difficulties have emerged. There's a, uh, but elsewhere in the region, you find uh, no comparable success as far as trying to 
challenge an established political order. Chaos and Counter-Revolution, The Arab Spring by Professor Richard Fogg is published by Zed Books and is available now. I'm Alex Bird and you've been listening to Pod Academy.